Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we're going to be talking about preparing and running campaigns. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about the different techniques that we personally use for preparing for campaigns and some of the tips and and tricks that we've picked up for for actually uh, running them as well. So what have folks been up to lately? Well, one thing I've been doing, well, for some time now, is playing in a playtest with Mike Mason. Uh, He's been running the new Curse of Seven campaign that Chaosin will be publishing sometime next year, I think, which is a new Gaslight campaign. And I must admit, Gaslight isn't, out of all the eras of Call of Cthulhu, the one that attracts me the most. I, I think it's been... I, I think it's possibly been the poor cousin of the other eras. But this campaign has really surprised me by how much fun it's been so far. Obviously, I'm not going to go into any details because it's not out yet and won't be for a while. But, uh, yeah, it's been eye-opening. It's it's written by... Well, it, uh, Mark Morrison is leading the whole thing and it's written by a number of the Orient Express writers. And, yeah, I, I think it's got certain things in common with that. You know, maybe fewer trains. But, um, yeah, I've... I've really been a lot more impressed with it than I, I'd anticipated. And by curious coincidence, Matt, haven't you been playing a Gaslight campaign at the club? Yeah, well, sort of a campaign. Uh, we've been playing a series of linked adventures that uh, Matt Knott's been running for us for uh, from Sacraments of Evil. Uh, I don't think we're going to have enough time to play all of the one-shots in the collection, but we've started off with one, I believe it's called Eyes of a Stranger, that features some... Rather, yeah, stuff that you don't normally see on screen a lot in, in one-shots for Cthulhu. So they're not, they're not necessarily intended to be run as a campaign, but Matt not is linking them together? He's made mention that there are ways to link them. Cool. And that's what I think he's doing, is that he's picking and choosing which ones we'll have time to run in our... or what, which ones we'll be able to play through in our eight weeks at the club before we move on to the next long block. And how about you, Paul? We're about to get back into playtesting A Poison Tree. I'm working on another chapter of that. We just wrapped up the 1870s chapter, which sees the characters riding around on horseback in South Dakota. Shooting and kids as they climb out of a window. Oh, yeah. Well, that's just you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> but I must say, having been there on holiday now, this is what you call... This is research, Matt. Yeah. I know you're just looking <laughs> stuff up on the internet. I went there and I experienced it, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was great. So I was there on holiday in South Dakota and uh, touring around the area and the Black Hills and so on. We possibly better explain for, uh, for people who don't already know what a poison tree is. Uh, this is the campaign for Trail of Cthulhu that the three of us have been developing for a while, a couple of years now. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, we're, we're closing in on the uh, the end part of it now, or at least for the development phase. I mean, there's there's still going to be quite a lot of work to do after that to tidy the whole thing up. But yes, this is our epic campaign that takes place over the course of about three hundred and fifty years, and yeah, it should be different. <laughs> Just to brighten up your day, Scott, I watched a film recently and I quite enjoyed it. I'll just show it Scott now to get his reaction. Look, there it is. <laughs> oh, God. You actually, you, you, you enjoyed The Last Lovecraft? Yeah, quite, I thought it was quite fun. I, 
Okay, to be fair, I didn't make it past the first ten minutes of the film. It might get considerably better after that. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. Okay, yeah, yes. And yet he got through repulsion. What the hell? I know. Mm. What can you say? Yeah, mm. so that's the last Lovecraft. Um, an adventure to save mankind. Well, Scott, what's it time for now? It's time for the Lovecraftian word of the week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And what's the word, Matt? And this week, our word is noisome. Which, until a few minutes ago, dear, uh, dear listeners, I thought just means someone making a whole lot of noise. But apparently it's not. It's an adjective. Meaning, one, offensive or disgusting, as in odour. Or two, harmful or injurious to health. Yeah, it's um, an odd word. No shit. Well, it, use, it tends to get used these days, I think, primarily to mean something that smells bad. But it generally means something that is offensive or offensive to the senses or upsetting in some way. It's one of those words that just sounds negative when you hear it, even if you don't really know what it means. One of the things I do when I'm teaching vocabulary to children, there are words that they don't know. But often you can sort of say, do you think that's like a negative sounding word or a positive sounding word? And even if you're not wholly familiar with what the word means, sometimes you can just kind of get the gist of it. And that's kind of useful for spotting similar meanings and opposite meanings, going into work mode here. Um, <laughs> but with Lovecraft's word, work, when I come across that word, even if I don't know what it means, you kind of get a feel that, like Matt said, it means something unpleasant. Well, to be fair, if it's in a Lovecraft story and you don't know what it means, it means something unpleasant. That's the default <laughs> setting, yeah. really, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I, and, yeah, I mean, this is a classic Lovecraftian word in that respect because I, so many of the words he uses seem to be synonyms or ways of implying um, repulsion, uh, the, the, the whole idea of something that is viscerally repellent. And noisome definitely carries that that connotation. Repulsion definitely carries a negative connotation with us, doesn't it, Matt? Yeah, very repellent. (laughs) So Lovecraft used this word 33 times, usually, as you say, Scott, referring to bad smells. And our inspiration for this being the word of the week may be be some comments that Paul's wife Lucy has made about the smell of the recording studio after we've been recording. Even like but, storming, storming through the room and throwing the windows open. <laughs> <pretty> much. <laughs> you know, during the height of summer, it has been particularly bad. But yes, at the end of end of our average recording here, the studio is definitely noisome. Lucy's yeah. never come in and said, "My word, gentlemen, this room is, strikes me as particularly noisome today." <laughs> It's usually more colourful language. But but she might now. The game of funk is strong with this one. (laughs) But now let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word noisome in his writings. And first, from the statement of Randolph Carter. Over the valley's rim, a wan, waning crescent moon peered through the noisome vapours that seemed to emanate from unheard-of catacombs. And by its feeble wavering beams, I could distinguish a repellent array of antique slabs, urns, cenotaphs, and mausolean facades, 
all crumbling, moss-grown and moisture-stained, and partly concealed by the gross luxuriance of the unhealthy vegetation. And from the case of Charles Dexter Ward. And then the frightful work of those people. The lost crypt of horrors that had aged the doctor overnight. The starved monsters in the noisome pits. The awful formula which had yielded such nameless results. The message in minuscules found in Willett's pocket. The papers and the letters and all the talk of graves and salts and discoveries. Whither did everything lead? And from the Dunwich Horror. By that noon, fully three quarters of the men and boys of Dunwich were trooping over the roads and meadows between the new-made Waitley ruins and Cold Spring Glen, examining in horror the vast, monstrous prints, the maimed bishop cattle, the strange, noisome wreck of the farmhouse, and the bruised, matted vegetation of the fields and roadsides. But now, moving on to the main topic, preparing and running campaigns. So there you are. You've got this 300-page tome, and you're all excited, and you've said to your friends, oh, I'm going to run this great campaign next week. And then you open the first page and realise, oh, hold on, maybe I'm not going to run this next week. You've just described my exact reaction to picking up Beyond the Mountains of Madness my Rick Winsworth group, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's quite daunting when you get one of those books, and uh, you know, you're thinking, holy mo, what have I opened the door to here? Yeah, and some of the published campaigns are huge, and there is so much to absorb there. And particularly for ageing gamers like at least two of us... That is ageing. Well, yes. Yeah, we, say, we've just got a generous, You're being quite generous to Paul there. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, as you get older, your capacity to hold all this stuff in your head evaporates. So you do tend to have to use certain techniques to, to make all this manageable. I would say it's not just older gamers that need this scar. I'd say it's everybody. But older gamers need it more. This isn't meant to be a comprehensive overview of all the techniques that everyone uses out there. This is just going to be our personal experiences and the things that we do ourselves to make these things easier. It's certainly one thing getting a one-shot. You know, you get the... Say you get the haunting... It's a few pages, you read it through, you could read it through in an hour or two and sit down with your group later that day and run it, I think, without too much trouble. A campaign is a whole different kettle of fish. Of course, I mean, when we talk about a campaign, though, I mean, we'll go into this in, in a bit more depth as we go on. But when we talk about a campaign, it might not be an epic thing. We could be talking about much smaller things. Uh, we've seen, you know, some in some cases, you know, maybe even scenarios that were designed to be one shots have turned into mini campaigns spread over many sessions. People have strung together a number of uh, related one shots, or or maybe even completely disparate one shots into campaigns. Well, I guess the question here is what constitutes a campaign then, and what constitutes an extended one shot, if you like? You know, one scenario that runs over, say, four or five weeks. I don't class that as a campaign myself. Yeah, I think my views on this have been shaped somewhat in recent years by going to the Milton Keynes Club. The way the club is structured, 
we break play down into two different types of session. We have the campaign blocks, which are eight continuous weeks, and then we have uh, the short block in between, which is three weeks, which can be used mainly for one-shots or, or short mini-campaigns, well, really, really mini-campaigns, extended one-shots. But the campaign blocks, I mean, even then, eight weeks is probably a lot shorter than most people would associate with campaigns. When I talk to other people who've play, been playing campaigns with their home groups, particularly this applies to, I think, things like D&D and Pathfinder, you get campaigns that have been going on for years with the same characters. I, I, I've known people who've been playing the same campaign for you know, 10, 20 years, perhaps in some cases. And that tends to be where you're using setting books as opposed to scenario collections. Yes, but in this case, I, we're talking about the whole schmear. Um, we'll talk about you know the, the shorter, more focused stuff, but we'll also go into I think you know not only some of the epic campaigns, particularly some of the epic chaosium campaigns, but also ways in which people have extended those and perhaps linked them to other games. One question we should maybe start with is how many campaigns have we run? Personally, it's a very easy to draw figure. It's very round, very singular. You've not run any published campaigns, Matt? No, and I've only re- um, I've only run a handful of pre-published adventures. Oh, okay. So it's mostly your own material that you're playing, well, that you're running. Yeah, mostly. Uh, I'd say a good ninety nine percent of which is either stuff that I'm playtesting for publication, or it's stuff that I've just put together to run for a local group, or that I've run at a convention. So I very, very, very rarely run pre-published stuff, mainly because of the effort and investment needed to um, to read it, prepare for it, and get going with it. And Scott? Yeah, I certainly don't run as much pre-published stuff as I used to. Back in the 80s, I used to run almost exclusively nothing but. But nowadays, I don't, I don't really have the time to because I'm so busy working on, on my own stuff that you know, if I'm running a game, it tends to be something I'm developing myself. But I, I've certainly run... I've run Masks of Nyarlathotep twice. I've run... Uh, Campaigns that have been built up of any number of smaller published uh, sections or or one-shots that have been strung together into something assembling a campaign. And I've done that with Call of Cthulhu. I've done that with RuneQuest. I've done that with Stormbringer. I, I've done it with all sorts of games over the years, um, but primarily Call of Cthulhu. A long while ago, I ran campaigns for Over the Edge and Vampire and Osmagica, uh, the latter of which sort of was was a big kind of overarching fantasy campaign. Of the published campaigns for Call of Cthulhu, I've run Realm of Shadows, Walker in the Waste, uh, Coming Full Circle. So those are the ones that I can sort of draw on in experience for for talking about it. I think you ran Tatters of the King as well, didn't you? Oh, Tatters of the King! I forgot that. Yes, of course. I was thinking there was another one that I ran at the club. Yeah. But also, I guess we have worked on enough published campaigns between us as well that it perhaps maybe gives us a bit more of an insight into the way you can structure these things or take them apart or find different approaches to running them. Because obviously, as a part of the development process, we're, we're used to deconstructing these things, finding ways of running the material that each other has written. And that's... I think a very useful set of tools that can be applied in general to running published scenarios. And now, how do we prepare for published campaigns? Well, as we've mentioned before, 
They are quite daunting things. I mean, if you get a copy of, say, Beyond the Matters of Madness... The Breeze Block, that yeah, is. I mean, that's <laughs> been republished in a hardcover book that, yeah, is is like a huge paving slab. You build like, houses with it, you know. The telephone directory, I think yeah, it has. pretty but much. But more interesting. So what I think you have to appreciate with these books is that often they're presented as interesting stories to read as well so approach it i would suggest as a story and kind of put yourself try to immerse yourself in it as if you're playing it almost as if it's a you know one of those find your own adventure books Mm. um so sort of imagine you're one of the players kind of going through it obviously you're not going to get it in that format but if you have that in mind then i think you can try to experience it as your players would experience it and try and enjoy it in that way so it's not just a task yeah i think that also serves another very important purpose which is if you do that one initial read through not trying to commit everything to memory it gives you an instinctive feel for the shape of the campaign for the tone of it for what the important beats are and even if you don't remember all that immediately that overview is going to serve you very very well as you then go on and prepare different parts in more depth I think from my own, because I've literally only just started putting my well, tip of my toe into Beyond the Mountains of Madness, one of the things that's definitely helped me is having played through it at least one time. Because uh, I know all three of us played it a good few years ago when Robin ran it for us. Mm. I shudder to think how many years ago it was now. It must have been at least six or seven. Yeah, yeah a good oh. while back. Yeah, and the rest. Yeah, maybe. Oh, God. Time flies. <laughs> But you're having also, I presume it gives you the same kind of idea as having read through it, that you have the kind of the overall shape of it in your mind. And for me, I'm almost certainly going to be going back and going, oh, so that's what we did wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Another approach to that, Matt, would be to listen to an actual play through of the campaign. And a lot of campaigns do have playthroughs. I mean, that I guess don't let that colour your... Uh, take on it too much because people will have done it in their own style so that's perhaps a you know a two-edged sword and i certainly know from reading posts on places like reddit that there are an awful lot of new keepers who gain confidence and tips from from listening to actual play recordings maybe even not even necessarily the things that they're going to run themselves but hearing how another keeper does it hearing the different techniques that he or she might use will I, th- I think tear down some of the mystery and some of the barriers and some of the, that, that feeling of um, being overwhelmed that you might get as a new keeper. Now, I think whenever you come to run a game, I mean, I'm speaking for myself here, but I tend to just run from notes. Running from a published scenario is I find quite a challenge. There's too much information there. You know, they've gone to uh, the graveyard and they're talking to some guy. I can't remember what his name is. I'd flick through the scenario to find the guy's name. Oh, yeah, that's the guy's name. You know what I mean? There's, there's too many facts and details that are buried in the text that I've got to find. So I tend to go through it and make notes for myself and then run run it from those. I did that, that actually sparked that little light bulb of memory for me. When we started off doing the playtests for Two-Headed Serpent, when we started to share our different chapters between ourselves, and when I ran the Bolivia chapter, your one, for the very first time, that's exactly what I did for the first morning before I ran that, was to go through it and just bullet point each section to say, right, who's here, an overview of what's going to happen in this, what does, how does this trap mechanically work, things, things like that. So I had a very almost 
comprehensive or concise or cons- what's the word I'm looking for? A very consolidated version of everything in the text. And you'd picked out all the pertinent things and left out the uh, this kind of set dressing that you didn't need. Yeah, main- mainly coming down to the core, really important focus of each chapter. Yeah, I'd say yeah. investigators die here. That kind of thing is <laughs> I'm thinking of. Yeah, because I think I've seen certainly GMs who will go through these these chapters in a uh, campaign and there'll be passages of description and so on there, which, you know, certainly as a scenario writer, I've probably put in there to give them an idea of what this place looks like and spark off ideas for themselves and be inspirational. And sometimes, you know, I'll see other keepers using that as read-aloud text. And I I think personally, I mean, this is a matter of taste, but I think personally that sucks a lot of the atmosphere out of the game, that as a keeper you should be paraphrasing this stuff and, and making it your own as you present it. I think this is something you come to learn with experience, that not all of that detail in the written work needs to be transferred into play, literally. Yes. So. So when we're reading a published scenario, it might describe a room and it can't just say there's an office, there's a man in it. It has to say there's an office, there's a leather top desk, uh, there's a diary on it, there's, it's got three drawers, there's, a, um, so there's some pens, there's some paintings on the wall, it might describe them a bit. It says it's got a plush carpet, there are big red curtains and uh, a, a window through which you can see the lawns and a fountain in the distance, the man is sat... And you know what I mean? It goes on yeah. in detail and it, what it does, that's not all superfluous, that communicates what that office is like into your head and you get that image in your head i would say you don't need to read all those things out to your players you've got that image on your in your head and i would note down plush office that says that to me you might use different words then when i come to run it for the players i describe a plush office you know, 1920s, I know what period it is and I know what a plush office says to me and I just go to town on describing it. If there was something in that room that was important, such as one of the paintings on the walls depicts some important scene, I'd bullet point that. You know, there's a painting that tells them about this and I'd make a point of, well, you know, maybe not... um, flagging it too clearly but saying oh there's an interesting painting maybe ask for a role or something if it's not too you know if we can do without it uh and then and then describe it you know when you say plush office i was thinking of my office at home covered in plush cthulhu's (laughs) (laughs) and i did say that that you might use your own words so maybe don't use those words matt Matt, if I'm playing a game with you and I ever encounter an office that is full with plush cthulhus i am burning that motherfucker down (laughs) oh (laughs) <laughs> I suggest not leaving Scott alone in your house, Matt. Especially when I get my Sears for Cthulhu big, huge, giant plush. That thing's going to end up sat in my desk chair. Matt, it's so you're big. holding your hand to indicate something that's about five foot tall. Yeah. What? This this thing is well over I, a meter tall. I want tall. that on a on a pod, on a future podcast. Oh yeah, I'll bring it in. It'll okay. be. It'll, it'll sit. <laughs> Scott's glaring at me now. <laughs> I, I, I know it's not the way it's spelt, but I think in this case, Sears for kindling. <laughs> oh. <laughs> When we think about how we work together on scenario, on campaigns, what I tend to run the first time I run a section of a campaign or you know a part of a campaign is I make some notes, and I think we all do this, mm. and we run it from that. 
I can't give those notes to you, Matt, and expect you to run that game. Mm-hmm. Unless you've played it with me, maybe. But I can't give you my kind of notes. They're too sparse. They're too uh, limited in information. So yeah. I have to, you know beef it up a bit and add a bit more description but i know that i don't have to write it out absolutely in full because you can ask me oh what did you mean by this you know what's what's that bit and also you're going to give me feedback on how it went and we can talk about it once it comes to being so i think there are three layers here there's notes for myself there's notes that i would give to somebody else like a friend like yourself matt and there's the third layer if you're going that far which you know you're only doing this for publication but we're talking about published campaigns here so they've gone to that third layer of writing it out in full to people who don't share the same frames of reference you know if i say something matt i I kind of know i can put shorthand things to you but i can't put shorthand things in a published work there's there's a quote, I think it's from Sandy, that very much uh, that reminds me of. Something along the lines of, he can write a note, notes to himself to run, a, to run a scenario, say, at a convention in a matter of minutes or hours. He can run it, he can write up notes to a friend, that'll take maybe a day, but then uh, a few days, but then you're thinking of publication and it's months. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think what I figured was that to what I'm doing when I run a published campaign is I'm stripping it back down to those notes that perhaps the original author had or a version of those notes so i i read the published campaign you know a section of it and i try to almost just bullet points or strip those bits down and i can see that you know this is a an npc and there's a lot of description but i just get an image of him in my mind and i can just make a couple of notes to myself to remind me what kind of character he is so it starts off with some notes, it gets expanded all the way up to published, and then I strip it back down to notes again. But I think the important thing here, some people might say, well, why have the published bit? Why not just publish notes? Because what we've said, that the notes yeah. aren't enough to um, communicate the full uh, meaning of, of all the uh, what, what needs to be said in campaign play. Well, I think it's because a published scenario or campaign serves a number of different purposes. As we said before, you're trying to convey sort of the shape of things and the atmosphere and the tone and the the, the general look and feel of play, places to the keeper. And so as a result, a lot of that is things that you expect the keeper to absorb. You also want to provide some kind of reference for when they run the game. And to some extent, those two are mutually exclusive goals that something that is useful for that first part is not going to be useful as a reference, and something that's useful as a reference isn't necessarily going to communicate that that feel that you want to impart to the keeper. So I think, to some extent, we, we sort of almost rely on keepers doing the second part for themselves, almost creating their own references out of the material we provide them. And I know when I first ran Walker in the Wastes back in the, I don't know, mid to late 90s, I spent a long time going through that and virtually writing it. I mean, I'm talking longhand on A4 paper and I had copious notes, but I didn't really understand to differentiate between what was important and what wasn't important or rather what was essential and what I could make up on the fly. So I would note down great detail, but I didn't I think it's that skill of being able to figure out, oh, this is essential stuff that I'm going to need when I run it. And this is kind of extra stuff that I 
now that I've read it, I can wing that on the fly because I've kind of I've read it already. I've kind of got it in the back of my mind what kind of stuff it should be. Yeah, I think having the confidence to improvise around those points, as I've probably said many times before, is one of the essential skills as a GM or keeper. You, you need to have the confidence to be able to make the material your own, to be able to react to what the players are doing, and to stop this just being a sort of static, read-aloud experience. And I think having those notes, that framework that you've written down, gives you that confidence, because you know that okay, well, they're going to the cultist's house. And this happened in Walker in the Waste when I was running it for you, Matt. Mm -hmm. You went to a cultist's house and I'd got noted down just a little bit about the guy. I knew he was kind of a significant cultist and he'd got a few spells, but I hadn't really taken in what his place was like. But I thought, well, it doesn't really matter. It's a house. You're going around there. And I can still picture it in my mind quite clearly, the, the, the hallway that you guys went into, thinking that he was just an employee of this company you were going to visit. And then he cast the Dominate spell on one of you and got you to shoot the others or something like that. Sounds and about right. Yeah, it was, it was a great scene, but it was kind of partly improvised but very strongly improvised around that framework so i had the confidence of having all that background stuff in there and knowing where i could improvise around it i guess it's a bit like i was going to say i'm not a musician but improvising often isn't totally improvising something new it's kind of around a you know a framework isn't so, it so basically gming is jazz gming jazz <laughs> I, I used to be a bit of a musician. Now, I know from when I've done jazz solos in uh, some performances where you have a specific scale that you have to fit within. So you have certain notes that you can play in various bars so that it fits within the the, um, the rest of the tune, the rest of the tone of the tune. You, you do realise you Wait. have just committed yourself what? to recording backing tracks for the next time we sing. Screw that. I haven't picked up an instrument in about eight oh. years. <laughs> eight years? That's nothing. What? Yeah. He's a musician. Jazz solo? Oh, yeah, I, I did jazz solos at my awards ceremony for uh, things like my A-level ceremony. We knew nothing of this, did we, Scott? No, that's it. What, what instruments do you play, Matt? Uh, brass. I used to play cornet, trumpet. Okay, you're bringing your trumpet in next time we're recording that. <laughs> no, this... this <laughs> Jazz trumpet? <laughs> no. <laughs> what, do you have a jazz name, Matt? Yeah, it's called Matt. No, we need to come up with like a, a jazz name for Matt. A bleeding gums Matt or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Uh, I I can't help but feel we got off topic slightly. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I think another important thing that you need to be able to do, which is related to what we've just discussed, is be able to adapt the material for your own tastes and the tastes of your playgroup. I know, for example, when you ran Walker in the Waste for me, Paul, you threw out certain sections, you added bits of your own, you chopped and changed, and made it into you know very much your own campaign. One of the things, I mean, this isn't meant to disparage Walker in the Waste, but uh, that some of the sections of it are quite similar in the kinds of places they take, uh, the, the, the kind of locations that they use, and some of the elements in there. And I think you shook a few things up, uh, you know, added new elements to try to differentiate them a bit more. So there was a base in Japan that was supposed to be another, well, I won't say too much about Walker in the Waste, but another base. And... It was similar to one that you'd been to before, but I kind of figured, well, what if things had gone wrong there? It's a fairly remote base. What if it's been attacked by, you know, deep ones and a star spawn? So the whole thing kind of turned into a deep one scenario, but you guys weren't expecting that because that wasn't, you kind of knew that didn't feature in the campaign. And it really kept us on our toes and it made it feel fresh. 
if I remember right as well, because we played a version when you ran it for us that was very different to the the printed version. In that, again, trying to reference something without trying to remain spoiler-free, an event is supposed to take place in the campaign, which never happened in our um, in our version when we played through, and we ultimately prevented it from ever possibly happening or putting it like a hundred years into the future so it would not be a problem for us at the time it was a problem for the world later to deal with that was a fairly major rewrite in terms of how the campaign's presented in the book i think that's something you can do with a campaign you can read it and there are things that happen in it you might sort of think well that doesn't really work for me you know you can think well the that big ritual at the end there i'd i'd, I'd rather play it a different way and if you've got a bit a bit of experience you know, you might well change it or change the baddie or change the, the flow of things, shuffle things around a little bit. Um, so you can not really make it a wholly improvised sandbox thing, but you can just take the elements and play around with them a bit. And if that works for you, if, if you feel more comfortable with that as the keeper, that's fine, I think. I think more than anything, as keeper, you need to feel comfortable that you understand what is going on even if it's not quite the same thing that's going on in the published text, the important thing is you've got those locations in your head. You've got a handle on what the NPCs are, what they want to do, and how it all fits together. And one variation of that that I've encountered as well, which is something we may revisit in uh, an upcoming segment, is the idea of introducing elements of the campaign or doing some foreshadowing if you're running any scenarios beforehand with the same characters. So the classic example of this is if you're playing Masks of Nyarlathotep, our good friend Jackson Elias is a major part of this campaign. Um, the, the characters, the investigators in it, are all assumed to be friends of his. They've had dealings with him in the past. They've been perhaps saved by him or at least have been given vital information by him. He's proved his worth and value to them. It's one thing to be told that abstractly at the front of the campaign. It's another if you can run a few prequel scenarios with the characters you're going to use for masks and bring Jackson Elias in as a character and actually make him this living, breathing NPC. What I would like to do is have the character, the player characters meet an occult researcher who they know under some pseudonym, but they don't realise it's not his real name until the end of the, the one-shot. And then he lets them know, oh, by the way, that's just my pen name. My real name's Jackson Elias. Because mm-hmm. yeah. a lot dun, of players dun, dun. are going to know who Jackson Elias is. So you just, just kind of keep that up your sleeve for a bit. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, I'd like that. I think the, cam, uh, the Masks cam, uh, Companion has suggestions on running uh, a couple of example scenarios in there with Jackson as part of them. I don't know if they use that particular technique, but it'd be fun if they did. Well, you could certainly do it yourself, yeah. But ultimately, anything that brings more Jackson Elias into the world has got to be a good thing. Now let's take a look at how we run published campaigns. Some of this is going to echo points that we made in the previous segment. But fundamentally, I think a lot of a lot of what we bring to uh, running published campaigns is an ability to improvise around the points and and adapt things and make it a more dynamic experience that's focused on what the players are doing. 
Because, you know, as we can attest to having written a number of campaigns or contributed to a number of campaigns ourselves, it's a very, very difficult thing to write a published campaign that is not... I don't want to use the word railroad, but is is not heavily prescribed in a lot of ways, does not assume certain courses of action. And that can lead to the trap that, you know, you as a keeper are sort of bound to push the investigators down those roads, down those courses of action, because there are events in the campaign that you want them to reach, there are revelations you want them to see, and unless they do the right things, that might not happen. So I think a lot of the skill involved in running a published campaign is learning how not to do that, but to find those important points. And if the players do something else, find dynamic ways of presenting that information to the players, of of moving these scenes to different locations, of substituting one NPC for another, so they get fundamentally the same experience or a similar experience, but without being told that their actions are unimportant and worthless. That also comes down to the structure of the published campaign. So hopefully it's been well structured so that in chapter one, they've got to get from A to B, which leads them on to chapter two, perhaps, if it's that linear. Hopefully that getting to point B that leads to the second chapter is something that is structured well that is not too difficult to get to because if you if, if if as keeper you're getting stressed about are your players oh are they going to get this thing that leads them to chapter b if they don't then the whole thing's re- derailed yeah that would be a bit of a problem with the campaign i would say when you're making your list of bullet points as we discussed in the last segment maybe it's even worth going through and highlighting certain things that are absolutely vital to the flow of the campaign certain bits of information particularly certain clues which have got to go on to the players but also certain scenes which be really cool, certain handouts which you just want them to get. And thinking of different ways you can bring those into play if the players don't do what's written in the campaign. So that diary in the office, when they burn the house down, <laughs> how, are they gonna, how are you going to get that to them? Because the published scenario says the clues are in this diary, right? So just think, well, if they burn the house down, maybe there was, I mean, the last chance thing perhaps is maybe there was uh, some other investigator that got in there that posts us a copy of it or something that seems pretty lame but but try and think of some way that you can get this information to them maybe they meet an npc and um he's burgled the place and he's got he's got it about his person or somebody you know the, the cultist dashes out of the building and he's grabbed his effects and he's got it on him i think there are two modes that occur to me of playing a campaign I think one can play it in an episodic way. So each game session is an episode, like an episode of a TV show, like an episode of Supernatural or something. And each one has its own little arc within the episode. And you try and run it like a a one-off so it leads to a climax and it's exciting and really kind of driven. The other is a more passive um, play. Passive is perhaps the wrong word. That sounds rather negative. But a, a slower more um gentle approach and you know if we this is how far we get today well that's fine and then we play the next one oh it's time to stop actually that that reminds me a little of the wire actually you know you'd watch an episode Mm. of that and it would stop and you'd be like oh okay it's i guess the hour's up and it's kind of 
I mean, it's not as straightforward as that, but it's kind of stopped. It didn't. It didn't have quite that episodic feel to me. It was more like an ongoing yeah. story broken into sections. Yes, definitely. I don't think you should ever feel afraid to rewrite the material in a campaign. That I, I, I won't name any names here, but there's one campaign that we've all played, where certainly if I were running it now, uh, I would rewrite sections of it heavily because. I think tastes have changed perhaps a little bit in the way people approach games now. And the players are perhaps a little, a little less tolerant of, of railroading. And I can certainly think of a, a few points in this campaign where the instruction to the keeper is, regardless of what the players do, X happens. Um, in in a couple of particular places, it's, um, you know, here is this really dramatic situation. Here's an apparent problem that you're going to throw at the players. Here are the things they might do in response. And here are the ways in which none of it matters. But those are probably things, like I said in the previous section, whereby if you read it, or indeed you've played it and weren't happy with it, but if you read it and you sense that I'm not really comfortable with the way that works, you can probably take that material and, you know, restructure it a little bit, reincorporate it slightly differently in a way that works for you. Exactly. If you can find ways of making the players' decisions and the investigators' actions matter, and it may change some of the other things that happen later on in the campaign, but... If you, as a keeper, have got the confidence to adapt to that, if you've got a good enough understanding of the source material and you've broken it down enough, you can then adapt what happens to what the players have just done. And as a player, you know, that is a much better way of engaging me than just saying, OK, well, you tried your best, but nothing happened. But I rolled a zero one. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I think that's a useful technique you can use for more episodic campaigns. I... We didn't really go into this in the last segment. We meant to, which is the idea that you should do more in-depth prep for the chapters that are uh, going to come up. So, uh, yeah, we talked about the idea of, of doing an overview of the whole campaign. But let's say you're doing a, a fairly linear campaign. They're going to go from chapter one to chapter two to chapter three. Um, the idea that before you move on to doing chapter three, that's when you should do another pass through, do a really detailed breakdown, make sure you've internalized everything and, and to know that bit inside out. Of course, the downside of this is that if the campaign isn't a linear one, if it's one where, you know, say they've uh, started out in Los Angeles and at this stage they might end up in Inverness or they might end up in Paris or they might end up in Buenos Aires, you know, and, and each one of those chapters is a really big in-depth chapter, you don't necessarily want to try to hold all three of those in your head at the same time just on the off chance that the investigators are going to choose to choose to go to one of them. So a really simple technique, which is well worth doing, is just breaking out of the campaign, particularly at the end of the session, and just saying, where do you think you might go next? Make it clear to the players that you want to prepare for this as, as well as possible. And you know, they'll understand. It, it isn't taking the choice away from them, you're asking them, but... It, it may break the immersion of the campaign somewhat. It may sort of break out of character. But, you know, you as a keeper will then be able to de deliver a, a much better experience to them. One other thing that I've had good experiences with with running campaigns, both as a player and as a GM, is talking to people outside of the game. So between sessions and maybe emailing or communicating with players and saying, oh, actually, you know, your character, Matt, they've, they've gone off on their own. Um, As always. So let, let's just talk about what they're doing 
And when they come back, what are they going to want to do? And maybe you come up with an idea, you know, about what your character is going to do. And I can kind of incorporate that into the next session. That that can work really well. And it kind of gives a, the feel of a, a greater scope to the game. And I think this is something that's probably a lot easier these days than it ever was in the past, because with tools like instant messenger email, stuff like that, you can keep in touch as a group between sessions and share that information uh, in a way that, you know, when we were gaming back in the 1980s, just it, telegrams just weren't quick enough, really. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Along those lines, I, you could even set up something like a wiki or a forum or something like that for the campaign, so or a shared drive, so that things like the handouts uh, that people are uh, referring to, or or other out of character conversations, or maps, or any anything else that you need to share as a group, are there and readily available for everyone to look at between sessions. I don't think most players are actually keen enough to do that but it's nice every now and then you know you, you get a particular group that might really get into the investigation side of things and want to tear the uh, the clues apart or you get certain people who might want to conspire a bit in the downtime between sessions and having those tools there i think can bring the campaign to life going back five or six years when i was running a lot of live action vampire um, one of the players in the uh, in one of the games that i was running because i was running three linked games at the same time in different different places one in milton Keynes, one in reading and one in london why, why did you do that to yourself matt why did uh, you do that because to i wasn't because i wasn't writing professionally at that point and i had the time <laughs> <laughs> um but i built this quite complicated web of different plots subplots npcs locations and everything that was tied together one of the players did uh, go out and build uh, Simon Francis his name was <laughs> poor guy must have taken a real life sand hit trying to put this together um, did put a wiki together detailing everything that he'd come across and it was the only way he could do it by having a wiki set up with links between different pages and then having an tr overall tree diagram to show where the different page links went because he found it was that complicated and did this lead him to find all sorts of inconsistencies in the campaign that he then gleefully pointed out to you uh, no, but it was funny for me for where he got the wrong end of the stick in a couple of instances and going, <laughs> I'm going to play on that bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to grab something. Yeah. Yes, Paul is currently wandering around the studio like a restless cat. <laughs> oh, God, I see lots of handwritten notes in there. As you were talking, it just reminded me of when I ran that Ars Magica campaign, which is kind of a, a medieval D&D type game, um, what I would do is I gave the players a journal and each time we played, it was it rotated around the table, but a different person would get to write in the journal. Um, and this is that journal that they kept with pictures and um, writing and, and, and so on. There's the whole story. I'm just showing it to them now with, with some handouts and maps and so on stuck into it. That, and that, sometimes, that looks like a real-life mythos tome. It does. It, yeah. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? My God, I'm just looking at it now. The very so handwriting showing how sanity is degraded can, between one chapter and the next. Can you, can you take a photograph of that so we can put it in the show notes, Paul? Yeah, I think, I, I think it needs to be. Wow, I can't, looking at it now, I can't believe how much of it there is. Because it, the game went on for years, it was something they could look back at, and I could look at, back at as well. So I think keep some sort of record of your games because... You, as a GM, will remember it probably much better than your players, but your players will remember some things much better than you. I would suggest, now in this modern age, we have weird electronic devices that can record people's voices. 
don't and have a most catch on. of them have, most of us have got one in our pocket <laughs> maybe just say to people i'm going to record this is that okay it's not going to be put on the internet or anything and you can listen through to it yourself sometime in the week you know whilst you're doing some mundane tasks and things that people say you might not have picked up on or you might have forgotten that's really useful actually both as a player and as a gm if you've got the time to do that i think that's really useful but one word of warning if you've not done this before be prepared for the fact that you will absolutely hate the sound of your own voice that's a very useful technique but at the same time it's quite time consuming to go back and listen to those recordings i don't think it's ever a substitute for keeping good written notes as well i mean I'm, I'm quite bad about written notes when I'm running a campaign, but I will still... I, I'll have a notebook that I'll take along to the campaign with me, and I'll just write down key points every now and then, uh, you know, ideas for what may happen or important things that uh, the investigators did or which NPCs they've pissed off this week. And, um, yeah, th that will help me then plan the next session. Yeah, I think particularly with a game like Call of Cthulhu, where often there are handouts, nice handouts. Give them something, I mean, if it's online, then like you said, Scott, some sort of online resource, or just a paper journal if you're meeting around an actual table, that they can put those handouts in. They can just you know stick them in, and they can make notes about people's names and who said what. And when you say, oh, actually, you met this guy at the funeral home last month. You recognise him. They'll be, like, scrabbling to get the book and look <laughs> back. And it's, I think it's nicer than me as the keeper sort of saying, oh, yeah, you met that guy. Oh, we can't remember him. What's his name? Oh, it was Mr Perkins. He did this, this, and this. If I have to remind them everything, that feels a little bit like, I don't know, me doing all the work. They don't have the same investment in trying to remember. So if they've got it noted down, it's kind of nice they can look back and uh, refer to that. I always do when I'm running a longer game, I always get the players to say, right, what happened last week? And put it back on there. Oh, so totally. And the yeah. other thing you yes. get from that is sometimes they totally misconstrue events. So you, you get to hear how they perceived it. And it's like, oh, that wasn't true at all. But I'm not going to tell them that <laughs> often because that's the way they understood it. Along these lines, I mean, one technique I've seen you use, Matt, is keeping photographs or pictures of all the key NPCs. Oh, yes. And then just putting them out on the table as aid memoirs to people. So it's sort of, oh, yeah, these are the people involved in the scene. And you know, if, if you're the kind of person who remembers faces better than names, that is a really good visual cue. Full enough, that's why I do it, because I'm terrible with names. I remember, oh, that person, That's they, they fulfil this role in the campaign. Can't remember what their name is at all, but I remember they do this. Um, inspired partially, actually, going back to Robin, when he ran Beyond the Mountains of Madness, the huge cork board of all the different members of the expedition that oh, he had. Yes. That yeah. we just put a great big X through them each time yeah. they ended up dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that cork board was fantastic. <laughs> How do we put together a campaign from disparate published sources? I think the trick here is to reincorporate things that they've experienced before and to embed things in it. So let's say, a source most people are going to know, let's say you've played a scenario, a one-off, that was basically, you know, The Hobbit. Then you pick up a massive campaign, which we might liken to Lord of the Rings, and you sort of think, well, that was pretty cool. We played that game, The Hobbit, before. And, oh, you know what? There's quite a few similar things in here. But in this big 
Lord of the Rings type campaign. The uh, you know the, the the MacGuffin is. I'm not saying it's Lord of the Rings here. I'm saying just for the scale of the campaign. Maybe the MacGuffin in that one is uh, you know some sort of holy um, amulet that they've got to get. And you think, well, actually, they found this magic ring in the Hobbit. Why don't I just change that thing in the big campaign into that little ring that they found and make that really significant? Which is basically what Tolkien did after writing The Hobbit and thinking, oh, I'm going to write a bigger work here. Oh, you know what? He found that little ring. He did go back and rewrite some bits of The Hobbit, I think, to make that work better. But I think if you can take something from a previous game and embed it into the campaign... Because the players are going to be familiar with it. They're going to go, oh, yeah, we know this guy. We know this place. We've been to Arkham before. We've met, you know, maybe Professor Armitage or whatever before. I think using that example, if I was to do that with Horror on Your Express, for example, and do a spin-off, it'd have to be um, your knife that you went around running and screaming and proclaiming was your knife. And it no was one my else's. knife. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that would make a great item for another campaign, I think. And this sort of goes back to what we were talking about in the previous section about um, you know, perhaps doing some foreshadowing deliberately. If you know you're going to be running a big campaign, you know, that idea of bringing in Jackson Elias. But, I mean, it's not just that. I mean, you know, if, if for example, you know you're gearing up to run Escape from Innsmouth, maybe there are some Deep One-related scenarios you could run before that or things that give a bit of foreshadowing there or something that gives hints about Dagon or Cthulhu. Um, that will then make a lot more of these things kind of fall into place when you get round to playing the main campaign. Matt Knott did that with us when we uh, when we played Escape from Innsmouth, that he ran one of the scenarios, I think it's from one of the Arkham County collections, I can't remember which one, um, that involves uh, children being taken by deep ones, that starts off in Arkham but then takes you almost pretty much to the border of Innsmouth. It doesn't quite cross over into the town, but at least you, you get to see it across the bay as this kind of hulking it's coming in the next campaign guys you go in there next week <laughs> yeah we had that <laughs> ominous feeling and also we'd got to know our characters a bit and we'd got some dynamics between the characters so when we started off that campaign it didn't feel like a blank slate hmm. oh, even God. though you know going there it was all mostly new stuff but i think if you can just reincorporate some of the npcs so look through the, that campaign and think well people they've met previously can i you know just rub the file the numbers off and put those in again because the people in that campaign you can change their names to fit somebody in the somebody they've met before maybe a, a village or a town or something they've visited before just change the name in the campaign so it's the one that they've encountered previously yeah and don't be afraid to completely rewrite the adventure hooks that are supposed to draw the investigators or player characters in there i mean if i think back to the days when i was running campaigns back in the 1980s and, I mean, it was all very well if I was running something like Masks, which had a coherent narrative all the way through. But a few times, because I'd come off the back of playing things like D&D, where you had individual published modules, and the idea was that the heroes would then go through all of these, and they were adventures, they go from one to another. I tried doing the same thing with Call of Cthulhu. There were lots of published one-shots, collections of one-shots from Chaosium at the time, which... Yeah, I used and I ran the individual one-shots as part of a campaign with the same characters. And now each one of these obviously had ways of of bringing the investigators in. And 
<laughs> I, my memory is that a, a large number of them involved, you know, family member or old friend X has died under mysterious circumstances or something weird has happened to them and you've received a letter or a telegram. And at some stage, it did just start feeling like murder, she wrote, you know, where you know, everyone that was associated with the investigators would meet a horrible end. And, yeah, in retrospect, I, you know, obviously, I was quite young and a very inexperienced keeper then. I think if I were doing this today, I'd take a very different approach and just take the core of those scenarios and find different ways of hooking them all together and making them feel more coherent. And not just like a series of unrelated episodes that just so happen to feature the same ragtag group of player characters who really, in most cases, had no reason for getting involved with these things, but the players would just go along with it because that way they got a game that night. Or trusting every player that turns up at the table, not glowering at anyone in particular. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things that might help people with that is the investigator groups Mm. in the investigator handbook. So there are a number of profiles for groups, perhaps investigators of the occult or um, old army buddies, that serve to bring characters together for a reason and form a network which it's easier then to sort of tag on to different stories. Yeah, you don't end up with the situation where I was in a few times where, you know, you've gone to, you've started doing Adventure X because your uncle has died or Character X's uncle has died. And Character X dies about an hour into the game and the rest of them are going through still trying to investigate the uncle's disappearance despite the fact that none of them have got any investment in it anymore. But yeah, that is neatly solved by the idea of an investigator group. The idea that you have a shared mission, uh, you have a shared purpose and more importantly, you have a reason to bring in new investigators who are driven to investigate this this uh, mystery or this problem for some reason other than the player just wanting a game that night. I, for me, it just helps get around some of the disconnect. I've had this a number of times in recent years of just sort of sitting there during some Call of Cthulhu games thinking, why the fuck is my investigator doing this? You know, he, he, was, he was a haberdasher. He got called in by the family lawyer for no apparent reason in the first place. You know, it, it, now something's tried to eat his leg. His, people around him are dying. And, you know, this scenario has wrapped up. And now, why the fuck is he going to do this again? <laughs> haberdasher seems to be the most curse-stricken uh, profession, according to yourself, <laughs> given yeah. the anecdotes. Yeah, next time I give you a pre-gen, Scott, it's definitely going to be a haberdasher. <laughs> Level three haberdasher. <laughs> That's when you start to learn the spells, right? <laughs> yeah, giving the mythos experience package before he even starts. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing that can help, actually, is um, experience packages, mm. particularly mythos experience package. Oh, yes. <laughs> it yes. Can all, it, that can turn, uh, admittedly, if you do give that, as uh, Matt Knott will attest to in Sacraments of Evil that we're playing at the minute, be careful what spells you allow your players to have. Because you can turn the you can turn campaigns or scenarios a very different direction than they originally had planned. This Let is me. you casting <laughs> the spells, isn't it, Matt? <laughs> so, yeah. so, did you take Call Cthulhu? No, no, I took Gatebox. Oh, okay. <laughs> because if you get if you give a Gatebox to one uh, to one guy and send him into an opium den so that you don't have to worry about fighting through um, fighting through the place, you can just teleport right to the end and skip all the shit in between. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Or, hey, you get called to a, a, to a location on the docks. You're about to be ambushed. No, we're not. Oh, yay! <laughs> it's the TARDIS, isn't it? It's get rid of every combat in the game. <laughs> <laughs> The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. It is time once again to thank those generous people who have given us money via Patreon. We have running costs associated with the show for uh, hosting, for bandwidth, for domain name registration, all the usual things for providing an internet service. And as the show's got popular, they've actually mounted up a fair bit. Hang on, we're popular? Yeah, well, we're more popular. Oh, more there you popular. go, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> These things are relative. But, um, yes, thank you to each and every one of you who has given us money via Patreon and helped us cover these costs. Um, we have some ideas in mind for things that we can do with uh, the money that we're, we're beginning to accrue again. And, well, we'll try to announce them soon. But in the meantime, we have some thanks to sing. Uh-oh. Yeah. We do sing our thanks to anyone who backs us at the $5 level or higher. And this time, it is the turn of... Richard Hickman. You call this singing... You have a really weird definition of the word sing. So thank you very much, Richard, and brace yourself. much mate and now it's time for ask jackson it's time once again dear listeners when we sit round in a circle and we call upon the ethereal power that is jackson elias and draw down his infinite wisdom from from beyond the beyond of course jackson is really living in all of us all of the time which is probably actually more disquieting for him than it is for us. This episode's epistle comes from Scott McClure. Dear Mr Elias, When you're telling stories around the campfire to scare children, and you need to conjure a visage truly horrifying, can you do so without mentioning eyes, mouths, or tentacles? My children, I fear, have become jaded, and look for novel descriptions of nameless horrors. Warm regards, Scott M. Well, you know, the picture paints a thousand words. You could just show them a picture of the so-called horror. I hear there's a fantastic painter by the name of um, Pickman who can probably provide some services here. Um, But also, just summon a beastie and say, it looks like that, just in the middle of the campfire. That does simplify things an awful lot. But on the other hand, I, I don't think Jackson would need to lower himself to such base summonings if he truly wanted to frighten children around the campfire. Because we're forgetting that 
that Jackson has passed beyond the veil, and when he manifests amongst us, his his own appearance can be quite frightening. And I think just the sheer act of having this this disembodied voice whispering all these these unwanted truths about what lies beyond is going to scare the shit out of not only children but well anyone around that campfire. Plus, also there are other. Um body parts that can be quite horrifying rather than limiting yourself to eyes, mouth or tentacles. <laughs> oh, no, was... Alright, someone went down the dirt track. I was thinking of Clive Barker's body politic, thinking hands running around wild, the feet flopping across the floor. But no, someone had to go dirty with it, didn't they? I think you can do a lot with the tone of voice and the sounds you make. And actually, being in the same room as Scott when he's warming up and when he's recording sounds for the uh, for the for the thanking the backers, Matt, you were pretty disturbed as I was. I I'm, think I'm pretty glad that you recorded that stuff because that could make a great outtake. I don't think we should have turned the lights out when we did it, though. It was your idea. It was. Sorry about that. Also, I think dropping the occasional word of Aklo into your your uh, conversation with the children, into your stories, I mean, there's nothing like planting seeds of alien language in their head to conjure pictures that really only electric tools are going to be able to get out again. And of course, if you really want to frighten children, again, this is an idea that's really just planting seeds as opposed to something that's going to frighten them immediately. But tell them what adult life is really like. Tell them about responsibilities. Tell them about mortgages. Tell them about pensions. Tell them about the grinding futility of most day-to-day work. And they may laugh it off at the time, but as they get older, particularly, I think, as they get to their teens and they start seeing adulthood looming, then maybe the true horror will finally sink in. One day you'll be 32. <laughs> no, I won't, Matt. No, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> And so, what are our overall thoughts about running published campaigns? Well, first of all, we talked a little bit about the fact that we tend to run the material that we're playtesting ourselves, or perhaps these days more often run stuff that isn't published. I mean, do we generally find it easier to run published material, or because of the way that we work, do we tend to find it easier to come up with our own stuff? Personally, I'm on the angle that I like. To, I prefer to run my own stuff because it's not it doesn't involve so much prep. It involves a lot of research, getting the facts to then convey to people. It involves a lot of time, working out overall structure. But I find it easier doing that than I do trying to digest a telephone directory. I've had some pretty rewarding experiences running published material. I think the thing that puts me off is the investment of time, both in terms of playing it and in terms of preparing for it. But I know that if I if I want to set that time aside and do it, and I choose a good published campaign, then it can make for some great times. Yeah, I certainly find it more difficult sometimes running published material. But that, that I think, is a psychological block on my part more than anything else. That because the style I prefer to GM with these days is very much more improvisational. It's 
is that weird thing of giving myself permission to go off script. And once once I've got past that psychological barrier, and what we've talked about before, what Paul particularly talked about with breaking everything down uh, to its core components, that helps immensely with that. And once I do that, then I find running published material much easier. But until I can make it my own, then, yeah, it feels more like an exercise in memory than creativity, which does not play to my strengths. I think also, bear in mind, the only test of the experience of playing a game for both you and your players is have you had a good time? Has it been fun? Has it been memorable? If you want it to be scary, has it been scary? Nobody's going to come and test you. Did you stick to the letter of the book? Did you run all of the scenes from the book? Did you portray the characters in the book as they were written? Did you, you know, nobody cares. As long as you come to the table and you, you know, if you're running that campaign and you've used that and you've brought something to the table that was really good fun, like I say, there's no test at the end of it. Damn it. That, there goes my party piece for conventions of putting, uh, asking people, have you run two-headed serpent and then singling them out and giving them a grilling? Well, you can do that, Matt, and you can find out you know, how they ran it and what they did with it. And I think, hopefully, I would be excited by the people who sort of say, oh, yeah, we did this. And then they totally went off and they did something, you know, in some country that you didn't even write about. And I, you know, winged it and we did all sorts of exciting yeah. things. Yeah, I mean, certainly every now and then I will listen to actual player recordings on the Internet of stuff that I've written. And the ones that delight me the most are the ones where people have really made it their own and they've they've uh, done things that I never would have anticipated with the source material. If at any stage you sort of feel this invisible disapproval coming from the scenario's author or the campaign's author about what you're doing with the material, bear in mind that, you know, most of them, A, probably made most of this stuff up on the fly anyway, and B, would be more than delighted with whatever way you mangle it. Now, on a serious note, I have, I've had that same experience where I've seen plays that have taken, when they've written up actual play recordings of what, of what they've done in some of the scenarios I've written, and I've just sat there with this look of, God, why the hell didn't I think of that? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we hope you find that useful. Until next time, it's a good night from me. It's a cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.